Bookcraft is pleased to present Baptism and Temptation by Dr. Truman G. Matson from the series Jesus of Nazareth. We're now in the 30th year of the life of Jesus. And the verse begins, And Jesus came unto John to be baptized of him. Who is John? John is the immerser, the son of Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? He was, according to our understanding, the only lawful administrator of his day. He had the privilege of ministering in the priest's office in the temple, and all the more reason why he yearned for an heir, a son who could carry forward the hereditary rights of the Levitical priesthood. So he and his wife had pled with the Lord, and often in the temple, that they might have seed, that the priesthood might be preserved. An angel came and promised that they would have a son. We read further that John was, quote, filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And one way to read that is that from the day he was born, he was subject to the Spirit. Another way to read it is that from Elizabeth, the worthy mother, he had derived the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. In the Doctrine and Covenants, section 84, we're taught that he was at the age of eight days ordained by the angel of God, apparently as the preparer or forerunner of the Messiah. The prophet Joseph teaches us further that John was, in his time, both proper king and lawgiver in Israel, and that the Jews generally recognized this. When his mission was complete, then Jesus was to become king and lawgiver. The exact language is that the anointing of Aaron and his sons showed that all the power and authority and anointing descended upon the head of John, John the Baptist. This was virtually acknowledged by all Judea. John is portrayed in the records as a kind of wild man in rebellion at his own society. It is said he lived on locusts and honey. In fact, the word locusts in the original may refer to the fruit of the carob tree. But he was disillusioned with the Roman Empire and its corruptions. He was troubled at what had happened to his people, and he preached day and night repentance. But he also said that his mission was only in advance of one whose, and now I quote exactly, shoes I am not worthy to bear. But that phrase means, in the original, whose place I am not able to fill. And he explained that though he baptized with water unto repentance, the one coming after would baptize them with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The scriptures elsewhere speak of three baptisms, that is, three words for baptism, baptism by water, baptism of the Holy Ghost, and baptism of fire. Now, the prophet Joseph once remarked that baptism by water is but half a baptism and is good for nothing. 
without the other half, which is the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. And here he marked that these three really become one. He added in a different context that one might as well baptize a bag of sand as baptize a person in the first sense, that is, in water, without the sequel baptism of the Holy Ghost. But what is meant by the expression, the baptism of fire? The metaphor has continued in scripture and in later language to apply to trial, as in the expression, tried by fire. But in the setting of baptism, it's clear that Jesus is teaching that there is an outpouring from God which is associated with the idea of fire or of burning, and especially with the idea of purification. It was Paul who used the expression, our God is a consuming fire. But what the fire of God consumes is not the person, but it is the corruption or the distortion or the impurities of the soul that are purified. One who heard the discourses of the prophet Joseph Smith in Nauvoo once remarked that he had been puzzled by this very passage and that the prophet was able to reconcile him. He quoted the verse, which is also in Matthew, from John about, I baptize you with water, but one cometh after, and so on and remarked that later on the statement is made there is one baptism in the passage, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The reconciliation in the prophet's discourse was there is but one. It takes baptism of water and of the Holy Ghost and of fire to constitute one full baptism. The multiple meanings of baptism are all but infinite. And no one sermon or account can do justice to them all. But we do have a clarifying passage from John, though we cannot be sure whether it was John who wrote the Gospel of John or John the Baptist. But citing Jesus himself, we have the following. I was in the beginning with the Father and am the firstborn and all those who are begotten through me, and I pause to insert, this begetting process begins with baptism, are partakers of the glory of the same. This is to say that the blessings which include the blessings of baptism, which Jesus received, are the very glory of him, the glory of the firstborn. But when we follow him, we are partakers of that same glory, and the verse finishes, ye are then the church of the firstborn. To enter into the kingdom of God is to enter the kingdom of heaven and to begin to have heavenly experience even while on earth. This Jesus did, and this through him we may likewise do. Now Jesus anticipates, obviously, 
the day of baptism. And his tribute in later scripture boils down to three different brilliant statements. He says of John that he was a burning and a shining light. He says also that he was one of the greatest of prophets. And he says further that when it is learned that John has been brought into captivity and is about to be tortured and even, as it turned out, beheaded, he weeps and says our translation, he sends angels. So these two who have met before in a very strange way now meet as grown men. And John says, according to the Gospel of John, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. And when Jesus asks him to baptize him, he replies, I have need to be baptized of you. Then why do you come to me? Before we turn to the why, let's for a moment look at the where. We know from other verses that John was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. No amount of scholarship has been able to settle the question of where that is. Another verse says that he was baptizing beyond the Jordan. And tradition, which we cannot fully trust, places the baptism in the Jordan just north of the Dead Sea. There are those perhaps fanciful who say that Jesus was baptized at or near the very place in the Jordan where, centuries before, Joshua had crossed the river with the children of Israel and begun the conquest of Jericho. Whether that is true or not, clearly this baptism was the beginning, a new crossing, a new Israel, a new kingdom, and a new order. Now, in answer to the question of why, all we have from the lips of Jesus at the time is the phrase, suffer it to be so, or permit it to be so, to fulfill all righteousness. But we have been taught that there was more involved. To the Jews in that period, baptism or immersion was a kind of rite of purification, not always connected with the idea of remission of sins. But all proselytes, or all Gentiles, were in fact baptized or immersed and are to this day. We learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls, however, that immersion and, in addition, ritual washings, sometimes performed very frequently, almost daily, were part of the pattern of ceremony for the Qumran community, and this was a group of Jews, most think, were properly called Essenes, and some have even speculated that John was an Essene and that he knew and even participated in the patterns of this group near the Dead Sea. In any case, baptism was more than remission of sin. And we learn again from modern insight that Jesus set an example for other needs, not just for the remission. Thus, for example, we're taught that he received a fullness and the word fullness is frequent in the writing of John, who continually adds to it the point that he did not 
receive the fullness at first. If a man receives the fullness, Joseph Smith said, the fullness of God, he has to get it in the same way that Jesus Christ obtained it, and that was by keeping all of the ordinances of the house of the Lord. The record such as we have it tells us that he kept the ceremonies and even the customs of the Jews, circumcision being one of them. So it is not out of keeping with that pattern to say that he saw baptism as a process of rebirth even for him. The closing of the circuit, a divine linkage, and in a way the acceptance in maturity of his own mission by covenant and consecration. Before a king is a king, he must be a prince. Before one can move from a small degree to a greater degree, he must begin. And in order to climb a ladder or go from grace to grace, to use John's words, one must fulfill and honor the lesser before the greater. So Jesus descended into the water as an obscure youth from the north. He emerged as the Messiah. Again, said the prophet Joseph Smith, being born again comes by the Spirit of God through ordinances. And the first of those ordinances is baptism. Jesus himself later compared baptism to birth, and we read that he himself did perform baptisms, but not so many as did his disciples. Further, we learn from the Joseph Smith translation that when the Pharisees inquired of him and said, Why do you not receive us with our baptism, seeing we keep the whole law? Jesus replied, Ye keep not the law. If ye kept the law, ye would have received me, for I am he who gave the law. I receive you not with your baptism, because it profiteth you nothing. For when that which is new is come, the old is ready to be put away. So again, this was a new beginning. And as he emerged from the water, an experience occurred to John. It's clear that he is the one who both saw and heard, whether others did or not. A voice spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. More precisely in the Greek, This is my Son, who delights me. And then two words are added. Hear him. Associated with this manifestation was the sign of a dove. The King James puts it in a way that sounds as if the Holy Ghost was embodied in a dove. What we learn instead is that the dove is a sign of truth or of divine favor. Said Joseph Smith, the Holy Ghost cannot be transformed into a dove. But the sign of a dove was given to John to signify the truth of the deed, as the dove is an emblem or token of truth. Later, John, who has now become a convert, initiates his own followers into the recognition that the Messiah is in their midst. Two of them go to the Galilee from John, who is now in prison, and say to Jesus, 
Art thou the Messiah? Or look we for another? Some have taken this to be evidence that John had doubts or misgivings about his initial assurance. But the context suggests that instead he wanted his own followers to make the transition to the Messiah, to see him face to face, and to recognize him as had John. We turn now to the immediate sequel, to the temptation. In all religious history, there is a pattern. After great tribulation come blessings, but also after great blessings come trials and temptations. The prophet teaches us that the leading into the wilderness, followed by immense temptation, was not at the initiative of the adversary. Instead, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. But first a moment on location. This all occurred somewhere in the region of Jericho which is at once the oldest continually inhabited city in the world, situated at the lowest point on earth, namely just north of the Dead Sea, which is 1,200 feet below sea level, and at some seasons of the year the hottest place on earth, sometimes 130 degrees in the shade. The whole history of civilization is recapitulated in Jericho. Archaeologists have found flint and bone implements and pottery and metals and copper and remnants of mud brick houses and plaster and graves with provisions for the next world. And all these predate the biblical era. Nowhere in the Holy Land are the contrasts so vivid. Here was built in the time of Jesus the magnificent pools and pillars of Herod's winter palace with all its wealth and power and indulgence. Riches in contrast to grimy poverty. Herod built aqueducts to bring water into the area. One wonders in passing if Jesus as he entered this area remembered that an earlier Herod had sought to kill him as a child and whether he anticipated that this Herod would soon, within three years, be intent on his death likewise. It's a contrast of life and desert. In every direction from Jericho, the soil is white and unproductive. But in Jericho, there are flowers and citrus and spices and bananas in midwinter and palm trees. Herod had leased this oasis from Cleopatra and was given it by Mark Antony. And after the joint suicide of those two, the Emperor Octavian made it Herod's own. Further, the area surrounding it, or wilderness as it is called, had vipers in it, demons, according to the folklore and the mythology, wild beasts, according to Mark 1, and searing sunburn that could very quickly beat a man into senseless dehydration. On the other hand, a little bit of shade here and there. 
Also the contrast of heights and depths. The wadis going up toward Jerusalem are sometimes a thousand feet, sheer and frightful on the winding road, parts of which are ancient. So now we turn to the actual sequence of the temptation. Says the modern translation, Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be with God. He fasted, we know, for 40 days and nights. Almost incomprehensible. But the record says he had communed with God and afterwards was and hungered and was, quote, left to be tempted of the devil. The temptations, as they are recorded, reduce to three, and the first one is of appetite. For, says the adversary, if thou be the Son of God, and an if clause goes before every one of his taunts, if thou be the Son of God, make these stones bread. In the fever of hunger in the Judean wilderness, the stones themselves occasionally look to be bread. We don't know whether Jesus was on a mount. If he had gone north, he would have been. But no matter where he went, in whatever direction, he was above Jericho and therefore could either remember or look back on and see the luxuriant green of the oasis in the midst of his fasting. Jesus' answer was a resort to scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone. But then came the second taunt, If thou be the Son of God, then cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Our version makes it clear that it was the Spirit that had shown him or set him upon the pinnacle. And there is speculation on what part of the temple that meant. Today, people point to the retaining wall corner, the southeast corner, which is a dizzying height above the ravine or the brook Kidron. Josephus says that it was an extremity or tip of the temple, and that would suggest perhaps it was toward the inner court, perhaps the top of the Holy of Holies. The Spirit had envisioned the temple to the Master, but now he's being asked, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from there. And then the added taunt, For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning him. A rabbinic saying is that, according to teachers of the ancient world, when the king or the Messiah reveals himself, he will come and stand on the roof of the temple. If that was in the consciousness of the time, perhaps this was a kind of inverted prophecy. Don't just stand on the roof, throw yourself down and prove that you have power. The taunt of the sign seeker. We know that the adversary did not doubt the identity of Jesus. The use of the word if is only a ruse. And in both ways he is deceptive. On the one hand by saying if thou be etc. 
he is implying that he does doubt. And on the other hand, he is implying if a sign will be given, I will believe. But neither is true. Modern scripture teaches us that those who seek signs in this mode will receive signs, perhaps, but not unto salvation. For the signs that are fulfilling follow righteousness. They are not the basis of conviction. And later Jesus therefore says in a very scathing rebuke to those around him that it is a wicked and an adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. There is a further irony in these uh, attacks of the adversary. For he is asking Jesus, who is himself the living bread, to do a miracle to make bread from stone. He is asking Jesus, who created the earth in its paradisiacal state, to show that he has power over the earth. And that leads then to the third and final temptation, where, again, after the Spirit has shown Jesus the kingdoms of the world, and the Greek suggests the inhabited kingdoms, so the great cities, the great collections of mankind, then again, the word again is added to the text, the devil comes and says, all these things will I give unto thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. He did not really have them to give. He is usurper, perverter, and destroyer. Nevertheless, he is asking Jesus to become an idolater. And Jesus' reply is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. 